If you would take your Bible and turn to Paul's letter to the Philippians, the book of Philippians. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles and you're not familiar with the Bible, that begins on page 980. And we're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 1 here in just a moment. We are beginning a new series in Philippians. Um, it, if, you, if you just did a Google search, most of the series in Philippians have something to do with joy. I mean, joy is mentioned like 16 times in the book, and certainly it is important but add, the more that you look at it and the more that I looked at it, the more I realized this book isn't just about cheering up Christians who need some joy. It is about helping them to do exactly what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27, and we take it to be the title of our series, Stand Firm in One Spirit. Now, this will result in joy. It comes with joy. We must be joyful in it, but this isn't a book totally dedicated to the joy of the Christian believer, except in as far as joy is associated with standing firm in one spirit for the gospel. About five centuries before Jesus was born, Julius Caesar was assassinated, and he was the Roman emperor, and the two men responsible for that, Cassius and Brutus, a couple years later went to battle against two of Caesar's loyal men, Mark Antony and Octavian. And that battle took place on a plain just outside the city of Philippi, named for Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. Octavian later become the, became the Roman emperor that we know as Octavius, uh, or sorry, Augustus, and uh, he honors Philippi by making it a, Rome, a Roman colony. It had such a place in, in the, that history that he decided it would be a Roman colony. Some called it Rome in miniature, which means that the Philippian cities are now citizens are now Roman citizens. They are free from the threat of imprisonment and scourging by Roman authorities, able to appeal to Caesar if needed. About 80 to 90 years after that important battle, a group of women from Philippi wandered down to the banks of the Gangites River to pray because there was no synagogue in Philippi. Small group of men approach, led by the Apostle Paul. And Paul, with the sound of the river in the background, can you hear it? Do you ever just sit and listen to a creek or listen to the river? With that sound in the background, Paul begins to speak, and he speaks about Jesus. He speaks about Jesus' death and resurrection, that Jesus is God's promised Messiah, the Christ, that there's forgiveness and salvation in Him. And God is at work. God actually opens the heart of one of these women, and she pays special attention to what Paul is saying. Her name is Lydia. Lydia is baptized, and she says, why don't you all come stay with me while you're in town? So she hosts these men while they're in town, 
On another day, sometime later, we don't know exactly when, another, this group of people is heading, led by the Apostle Paul again, is headed down to the banks of the river to pray. And on the way, they come across a demon-possessed girl. And Paul casts out the demon. But little did he know that this girl was quite the moneymaker for a few local men. And those men got very upset and stirred up a crowd and had Paul beaten and Paul and Silas beaten and thrown into prison. And maybe you remember what happened. They get into prison. It gets late at night. And then I can just imagine... Oh, Lord, my God. Right? They just start singing. They weren't singing that, you understand. That was written far later than this. But they're singing hymns to God. And they're sharing Christ with whoever will hear. They share Christ with the Philippian jailer in his fear. And the Philippian jailer, like Lydia, is saved. And these kinds of stories multiply in the time when Paul is in Philippi to the point that when it's time for him to leave, he's not just leaving behind two lone believers. There's a church that's been born there in Philippi. Later in his missionary travels, Paul would come through again, encouraging them. You see that in Acts chapter 20. But now, Paul's in a Roman prison. He's still preaching the gospel. He's still seeing God save people through his work. I mean, even members of Caesar's household have come to faith in Jesus. And it's there in prison with Timothy by his side that Paul sees something he didn't know if he'd ever see again. It's Epaphroditus from Philippi. And Epaphroditus has come with gifts from the church to support and encourage. I don't know, maybe there was a purple blanket from Lydia in there to keep him warm in that cell. But it's not just gifts that Epaphroditus brings. He brings news. These are hard days in Philippi. And the hardness of that situation comes basically in three under three types of things. The Philippian situation first is marked by opposition. There are enemies afoot, enemies of the gospel, enemies of the cross, people with power who are increasingly angry because the Christians in Philippi are not professing that Caesar is Lord like everyone else does. That was the patriotic and religious mantra of the day, Caesar is Lord. And Christians are becoming afraid. It's a frightening thing, afraid of what might happen to them, what might happen to their businesses, what might happen to their families. Some of them may end up in prison like Paul did there in Philippi. But not only was there opposition, there was deception. There, was false, there were false teachers, Judaizers, saying that apart from circumcision, there's no real salvation. Now, that's not true. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says that we're saved by grace through faith. That's what Paul had preached. Remember what he told the Philippian jailer in Acts 16, 31? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And yet, these Judaizers are a threat to sound doctrine in the church. But on top of the opposition and on top of the deception... In the midst of all this hardness, there seems to be the beginning of the cracks of division in the church. 
a couple of prominent women who've been faithful to work along Paul, alongside Paul when he was there and who are known in the church or at odds with one another. Not only that, there seem to be people who are looking out for themselves rather than looking out for one another. So as Epaphroditus relays all of this, Paul's heart longs to go. He wants to get up and walk, and if he were, the chain would keep him there. He can't go. So he writes. Opposition, deception, division. I wonder if that sounds familiar here in 2021. I wonder if that has a ring of familiarity to you. I think if we think carefully about it, it will ring quite true. And so whatever it is that Paul's going to say to these people is going to be important to us. Whatever it is that we find along our study through this book is going to help us as we think about opposition and deception and division. The letter that Paul writes is what we have here and We want to read, let's read the first 11 verses here. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes this. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, this is your word. It is without error. It will not mislead us. And so we pray by your grace that our ears and our hearts will be open to its truth. Teach us by your Spirit. Help us so that we might know you, know your truth, live for you. Help us to think of these things in our days of opposition and deception and division. We pray for Jesus' sake and in His name. Amen. Now, these first couple of verses are very standard, uh, ancient, a very standard opening in an ancient letter. If you've been studying the Bible for any amount of time, you'll notice this pattern that it is sender, receiver, greeting, and then thanksgiving. In almost every letter that Paul writes, sender, receiver, greeting, thanksgiving. So Paul, and Tim, Paul mentions Timothy, by the way, because if you look back at Acts 15, 
Paul picks up Timothy on his journey, and so Timothy would have been with him when he went to Philippi. And so the fact that Timothy's there, Paul mentions him so that they know, hey, Timothy's, Timothy's with Paul. They're both servants of Jesus. To the saints at Philippi, along with the overseers and deacons. In other words, this letter's for everybody. It's the only time in all of Paul's letters that he includes the officers like that, the officers of the church. So he wants everybody's ears to perk up. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a very typical greeting for the Apostle Paul, a greeting of blessing. And then it's the thanksgiving that where we will spend the bulk of our time. It's where we see Paul's heart. It's where we see the relationship that he has with these Christians and, and quite frankly, a model for us to follow. And so I just want to point out three things that we see here. First, we see that Paul cares. Paul cares. Paul isn't a dispassionate writer. He's not a church consultant who shows up and checks into his hotel, right, and makes demands about the the type of food he wants and all these things. And so he comes and he says, well, Gray Road, here's your problem. Here's the solution. Pay me my fee and I'll be on my way. He's not like that at all. Now, of course, they do have, uh, the, the, the church has been financially supporting Paul. They are in partnership with him. That's what he says in verse 5. The word partnership there is the Greek word koinonia, maybe one that you uh, have heard before. Some, some churches name whole ministries after that, koinonia. It means fellowship, but Today, we have to understand what it means because today we tend to think of fellowship directly connected to food, don't we? I mean, it's just a meeting until the donuts or the dessert or the fried chicken shows up. Then it's fellowship, right? And, and I mean, there's nothing wrong with conversation and friendship over food. I love it. But, it's, but this, this word for fellowship is more than that. It's more, it's like what my pastor back home used to say, it's more than two fellas on the same ship. All right? There's more to it than that. It, there's the idea of sharing, of a shared experience. If, if you think about a, a business partnership, you share the responsibility, you share the work, you share the concern, you share the burden, and you share the fruit of your labor. It's been a while since we've had a good Lord of the Rings reference. So, to not neglect such valuable literature, (laughs) if you think about the fellowship of the ring, the hobbits, the elves, the dwarves, the men, all together sharing this one mission that they have. But what Paul shares with the Philippians and what we share with one another is far greater than any of that. It's far greater than the fellowship of the ring. It's far greater than a business partnership. We have a shared salvation. We share in the same spirit. We have a shared faith. We have a shared family. We have a shared future. We have a shared experience of grace. If you look down in verse 7, at the end of it, it says, for you are all partakers with me. That word partakers, the root of it is the same word, just with a prefix on the front of it. You are with me in this grace, in grace that we need as as we suffer the imprisonment, as we serve the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
Paul is with them. He cares. And because of that deep spiritual gospel bond, Paul deeply cares for them. Look at the language he uses in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Not I have you on a list of supporters. Not we're good acquaintances. Not we've had some good times together. But wherever Paul goes, the Philippians go with him because he holds them in his heart. And then even more than that, in verse 8, he says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This deep sense of longing in other places speaks about, in 2 Corinthians 5, our yearning to put on the new tent, the new body, the glorified body in heaven, to yearn for that. Anybody ever yearn for that? Anybody ever yearn to be free of sin and its influence? And then in 1 Peter 2, Peter writes about yearn for the pure spiritual milk of the Word, that we ought to yearn and have a deep longing for the Bible. And Paul picks up that word, that word that he's used to talk about heaven and that Peter's used to talk about the Bible, and he says, I yearn for you. I have a deep longing for you, for your good, for your growth, for your church. That is quite something. Because what binds them together is Christ. What binds them together is Christ. And so his heart is wrapped up in them. His affection, he says, mirrors the affection of Jesus Christ. That same kind of, that affection word is the word for guts. I mean, like desire down to your gut level. You want it so bad you can feel it. That's what he wants. He wants them. He wants their joy. He wants their progress in the faith. He wants them to stand firm in one spirit, which we'll get to in a future week. He shares their pain. He shares their joy. He shares their sorrow. He shares their suffering. He shares all of it. It is fellowship. And it's for all of them. I want you to look at this. One of the things that I do at the beginning of every week on Monday is that I handwrite whatever text that I'm going to be preaching. The reason that I do that is because my brain will get going so fast that I will miss something if I don't do it. And so handwriting this text, you know what word I just kept seeing over and over and over and over again? All. All. Listen to verse 7 and 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my defense and in the imprison and then skip down to verse 8 for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus now this you all is not y'all all right cuz if you look at verse 6 he says he who began a good work in you that's plural that's y'all he who began a work in y'all is going to finish it all right that's what he said when he was in southern macedonia all right so But here's the thing, is that he keeps throwing in the all, not to make it plural, but to make it clear 
That because basically how you should read that is all of you. As in every single individual in the church. He is not just speaking generally about y'all. He is saying every single one of you. God is my witness how I yearn for every single one of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Every single one of you is a partaker with me in grace. Every single one matters. Paul plays no favorites. He is not just in it to influence the leaders. Paul is in it for every single person there. Later we're going to read about, I mentioned them, in chapter 4 about Euodia and Syntyche, and these two women are at odds with one another. Paul doesn't pick sides. He's not saying, I'm with Euodia, but that's Syntyche. I mean, she needs to get it together. He longs for both of them. His heart is with, they're both on his heart. Every person in that church is held in his heart. Every single person in that church is in his prayers. I mean, what an example to follow, yeah? Because what binds us together is Christ. May God help us to not play favorites, to not just care for certain people, you know, the ones I have the most in common with. This is the way that much about church, this is how church thinking tends to go today, is that the way to really do well is to make sure that you do things where everybody who's kind of alike with one another is always together, and they're not so much with the others. But dear friends, we need to resist the idea that the only way that we can be a healthy church is if we have a group or a ministry for every single circumstance in life. You know, we got the men's ministry, the women's ministry, the single's mom's ministry, the single dad's ministry. Those two need to stay away from each other, all right? The single mom's ministry, single dad ministry. It's not a dating pool, you understand. Uh, we got the seniors ministry. We've, we've, we've got the, the, the married with children ministry. We've got the married without children ministry. We've got the overly fertile ministry. We've got the struggling with infertility ministry. We've got the people who've adopted ministry. We've got this ministry. And that is just, that is a result of 20th century corporate creation of divisions. It has just leaked into the church. I love it when I sit down with someone that honestly, apart from Jesus, we would never be at the same lunch table. Not because I wouldn't like them, but because you just you walk into a room and there's a group that's just like you and there's a group that's not like you. You know where you're going to walk? The group that's like you. Because that's natural. Every single one Paul cares about. Every one of them. Our greatest commonality is not our circumstances. It's not because we're walking through the same kind of trial that makes us bound together. It's because we have the same Savior. That's what binds us together. Wouldn't that be great for every member to make it their goal to have every other member on their hearts and in their prayers? That's a good goal to have, isn't it? Not to make sure everyone else has me on their heart and me in their prayers, but to make sure that I hold every single one of you in my heart and in my prayers. To care, to give thanks with joy for them, seeing them as part of the fellowship of the gospel. 
Paul cares. Secondly, Paul encourages. Paul encourages. This is where we come to verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We moved into a, a new house in July knowing that we wanted to do, that there was some work that we would need to do on it. And as you do when you move into a house, you discover that the work you thought that you needed to do needs to be multiplied by things you never actually saw when you just walked through it a couple of times. And one of the things that we wanted to do was to replace pantry doors. The pantry doors, they were like regular doors that you opened, but when you opened them, they crossed the whole walkway. So if these pantry doors were open, you were not getting by. So we wanted to replace them with bifold doors. So I went out in October, and I, well, we took the, took the, took the doors off. I bought the new, bought the new doors, me, you know, measured the doorway, bought the doors, brought it in, measured again, and uh, then I left it because I knew I was going to have to drill into this tile floor to put down this, the bottom part of the door. And I was like, I don't even know if I can. Can you do that? Can I do that without messing up the whole house? We're going to have to tear down the house. If I mess up this tile, are we going to have to do it all over again? We're going to put this house on the market, go somewhere else? We're going to have to call HGTV to send out experts who are going to come and fix this house? So I would walk by that, and we had the doors off. And every day I'd walk by it multiple times and see... They're not there. I would go out to the garage where the doors stood, painted, ready to be on. I would see them. I'd be like, eh, I'm not ready to do that this weekend. Eh, I'm not ready to do that this weekend. That was in October. Three weeks ago, I finally put them on. And I want you to know, I'm actually not very happy with the job I did. I would love for those doors to be absolutely precisely together from the top to the bottom. But they are not. And it drives me mad. <laughs> Do you know my approach with those bifold doors will never be God's approach with us? He will never have the towel in his hand ready to throw it in on the work he's doing in us. He will never give up. I mean, we give him plenty of reason to give up on us, don't we? With our unbelief, with our sin. Yet he won't. He'll complete the good work. You see, he began the good work. That's what Paul begins with. I'm sure of this. He is confident of this, that he who began a good work. You see, becoming a Christian is not a matter of our good work to try to become a better person, a more religious person, a more moral person. Becoming a Christian is becoming a new person altogether with a new heart, new desires, new loves. It's not a work that we can do at all. It's a work that must be done for us. It's a work that must be done in us by God. Now, if you're not a Christian... Just consider that. You may be interested in Christianity, and my goodness, how thankful I am that you are interested, that, that, that God is causing you to pay attention to what you hear, to, to be interested. But just understand this, there's no crossing the line into Christianity apart from God beginning a new work. We can't leverage God to favor us. 
God, it's God's work from beginning to end. He's the one who sent Jesus to die for you. He's the one who raised him from the dead. He's the one who sends his spirit to cause us to be convicted of sin, to see our Savior, to turn to him in faith. And to trust Jesus. Boy, if that's you, if you're just, if you're just longing to, to know God, how I would love to talk to you about that. How I would love to talk to you about who Jesus is and what he's done and why he's come. Any one of the people that's here that's a member of this church would be glad to do that. God began the work, Paul says, and having begun the work, God never sets it aside. He never forgets about it. He works on it every day. In fact, did you know he's working on it right now? He works on it as we hear his word. He works on it as we live our lives. He works on it as we do our jobs. He works on it as we raise our kids. He works on it as we go and do recreation. He works on it. He works on it. He works on it through every situation. All things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. There's not a single thing you're going to encounter this in this life that is beyond the sovereign goodness of God to do and finish this good work in your life. It will not all be good in your eyes. But in the wisdom of God, He will work even things that are terrible and evil together in the end to be for our good. He will work in our lives through suffering to expose our sin, to show where we don't trust Him, to show where we need to grow. He will continue and work, and He will complete it. God began the good work, and God will complete it. And at the end, neither you nor I nor any of us will, we won't wake up in the new heavens and the new earth and think, well... I could have turned out better than this. None of us will say that. Because God's good work will bring to completion, Paul says. Once God is done, our lives on the new earth will not be like the slightly misaligned bifold doors on my pantry. They will be perfect. Free of sin. Fully like Christ. Isn't that great news? Now, you take that encouragement and put it into the Philippians situation. They're facing opposition by enemies, deception by false teachers, and division in the church. But none of it will keep God from finishing the work that He has started in them. None of it. No circumstance can outpower the Savior. None of them. He will sanctify, he will grow, and he will complete it, not in this life. Boy, don't we have to wrap our minds around that and just get comfortable with it, don't we? The completion comes at the day of Christ Jesus, the last day, when Christ rules and reigns forever. Our bodies will be raised as Christ was raised. Our bodies will be glorified as Christ's body was glorified, and we will forever be with the Lord. And when we're in the darkest days of opposition, when we hear the lies of deception, when we see evidence of division, we need to cling to that vision of the future. 
I mean, don't you need to hear that this morning? It may not be about opposition or deception or division. It may just be that you've been walking this hard road for a while now. And you are wondering, God, what are you doing? And through the Apostle Paul, he whispers back to us, I'm doing the good work. Keep going. Trust me. He encourages us. It is through these days and not in spite of these days that God will do his work. God, Paul cares. Paul encourages. And lastly, Paul prays. Paul prays. He's already said in verse 3 that he gives thanks for them. Verse 4, always in every prayer with joy. But in verses 9 to 11, Paul opens his prayer journal, as it were, and lets them see exactly what he's been asking God to do in them. Let's read it again just to refresh our memory. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The main thrust of his prayer comes right there in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Everything else flows out of that or is attached to that. Now, the question is, is it their love for God or is it their love for one another that he's talking about? And I think the answer is yes. It's probably both. Is probably their love for God and their love for one another. Not that love is absent from the congregation, but he wants to see it grow. He wants to see it abound. It's a word that speaks of having so much that there's leftovers. You remember those two? Remember in Matthew 14 and 15, Jesus in Matthew 14 feeds the 5,000, right? And in Matthew 15, he feeds the 4,000. And after the feeding of the 5,000, what do the disciples do? They walk around with baskets and they pick up the pieces and they find out they have 12 baskets full of leftovers. And then in Matthew 15, it feeds the 4,000, they have seven baskets full of leftovers. Paul's praying that they will have baskets full of leftovers after they've loved and loved and loved, there will still be more left over to give. That's what he's praying for them. That their love of God won't be reserved for particular times like corporate worship, but that love for God will overflow into every minute of their daily lives. That if, as it were, you could go to the church fridge and you could open it and you could find little bits of love for one another wrapped in aluminum foil so that if anybody had need, it was right there waiting on them. That there are leftovers. But it's not love that's meant to be mere sentimentality. It's not a hollow love. Look what he says about it. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. With knowledge, with a firm grip on the truth, on the word, on sound doctrine. And with discernment. Discernment basically takes knowledge and applies it to the situation at hand. To differentiate between what's right and what's wrong. To separate the truth from the lies. And what's the purpose? 
so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. Now, I think we should see this as a progression and not as a list per se, this reason in verse 10 and 11. That we approve what is excellent, right? So we'll be able to examine ideas and situations and judge rightly. That's what approve what is excellent is meaning to say. Judge rightly what is good, what is true, what is best. And as we do that, then it progresses on to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Not only to identify this is what is excellent, this is what is true, this is what is best, but to choose it what they know in their minds to be lived out in their daily lives. Isn't that one of the greatest separations that exists in the church sometimes? Isn't that one of the greatest temptations we can fall into? Is that if I can explain it in my head and if I can tell you that that's wrong and this is right and that's wrong and this is right, well, then I'm all the way there. Well, Paul says, no, 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 no. The reason why you need to approve what is excellent is so that you will be pure and blameless. So you will choose, in essence, what is excellent. So be pure and blameless, the next phrase, filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is what pure and blameless looks like. He's prayed for bountiful love. And as bountiful love is sown into the church, the harvest is a bounty of righteous fruit. As they love God, as they love one another, it will just show itself more and more and more and more to the glory and praise of God. That is the goal, isn't it? That is the goal. The goal of Paul's prayer is not just so that the church will get along. The goal of Paul's prayer is not just so that they'll still be there when the wave of opposition is over. The goal isn't just to hang on to sound doctrine. These are all important things, but those are sub-goals that are all heading toward the goal, the praise and glory of God. To the praise and glory of God. Do you want to grow in Christ? Do you want to grow in your spiritual life? It's not a rhetorical question. Do you want to grow in your spiritual life? Yeah. Why? Well, because I want to be more mature, because I want to be a teacher, because one day I want to be a pastor, because I want to be a missionary, because I want to be a good parent. All those things are fine and fine and fine. But in the end, one thing remains. We ought to grow because it gives praise and glory to God. That is the one thing that ought to drive us to glorify Him and to enjoy Him forever. What a prayer this is. You know, this whole new system of sending out two two different prayer lists in the week on Monday and then on Wednesday. When we, when we put that little prayer by Paul underneath the names of the members, which we do every Monday, the reason we do that is to give us a model for how we ought to be praying for one another. It's just one example of how we ought to pray for one another. Because you may not know the, 
the, everything that's going on in the, in the lives of those who are named in that list. But you can always pray the words of God to God for the people of God. I wonder if you've ever prayed like this for people. That their love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so they can approve what is excellent, be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness so that they'll glorify God. Imagine what God might do if we did begin to pray this way for one another. And he graciously answered. Imagine. Now think about their circumstance again. What has Paul prayed for? Love with knowledge and discernment. When you face, when, when they face opposition, when the opposition heats up, what is it that you need? You need a love for God that so treasures Him that no matter what hostility comes, you are not turning your back on the Lord. What is it that you need when deception ramps up in the greater church culture? You need knowledge, don't you? You need discernment. You need to be able to read that article from that source that you've trusted so many times in the past and say, now wait a second, something's not right here. This doesn't sound like Bible anymore. This is not a Bible article. This is from the minds of men. This is not a reflection of the teaching of God. You and I have to be able to do that because increasingly deception will grow with the democratization of teaching through social media and the internet deception will democratize too it will grow and what is it that you need when it seems that the cracks of division are beginning to form in the church at large and might even be unseen within the congregation you're in. What do you need? An abounding love for one another. You need the affection of Jesus Christ. You need to love as Jesus loves, where there's always more to give. Paul cares. Paul encourages, Paul prays. I, I don't think I'm going too far to say that Paul sees his life as bound together with these Christians. I mean, in the next chapter, he's going to say that they can do certain things to actually make his joy complete. That's pretty strong. Think about that. Don't be tempted to think that the goal here really is to be in awe of Paul and his love for them. It's really not. The goal is to follow Paul in that love because we've been saved by the same Savior. We have the same Spirit. Not only that, but in this letter, Paul explicitly points to himself as a model for those who read. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Chapter 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace 
will be with you. Paul is, knows that he is, is following Jesus, so he is not proud. He's just saying, look, we're all following after Jesus. I'm going that way. Follow me. We're going toward Christ. Do what I'm doing here. So I think we should take it as a model. We should make it our aim to care, as Paul did. We should make it our aim to encourage in this kind of way. We should make it our aim to pray. So the question is, do you? Do you care like this? Do you see your heart? Do you, do you hold people in your heart? Do you yearn for them? Do you encourage like this? Do you point people of the truth of the Scripture and what God has done for us in Christ when everything around is falling apart? And do you pray like this? Do you pray? Did you notice what's not in there? Now, he may have prayed for it, but the Spirit of God did not have him write it down. Do you know what he didn't pray? That they'd be safe. prayed they'd be holy that whatever happens they'd be holy do you pray like that even when you're praying for the healing of others even when you're praying for God to intervene even when you're praying for God's protection do you pray for God to enable by His grace so that we will respond to the hardest and worst situations in life with purity, with blamelessness, filled with the fruit of righteousness. I wonder where you need to grow. I wonder if there's some attitude toward fellow Christians even that you would need to repent of. Don't just look at Paul. Look in the mirror. And say, Lord, what needs to change about me? Because the truth here is that fellowship in the gospel forms our relationships with one another. That's what I see in Paul here. It's his fellowship in the gospel that forms this kind of relationship. We should care. We should encourage. We should pray. And why don't we do that now? Why don't we pray? Oh God, how thankful we are for your word. How thankful we are for its encouragement, for the way that it teaches and corrects and rebukes and trains us in righteousness. How we're thankful that your spirit works to speak to us through it. Father, I pray you would make us a congregation that cares, encourages, and praise for one another more and more. I thank you for the evidence of all three of those things that I have seen in these years. And I pray that you will continue to grow us so that no matter what opposition comes, no matter what deception may be spoken, no matter what division we may see elsewhere or even feel the tug of it, here, that we will always, always see our fellowship in the gospel as primary, our fellowship with you 
our fellowship with one another. We ask for the grace that you give so freely to transform our hearts and minds. And so we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with us in this church, in all the places you take us this week, in the days to come, and forevermore. In Christ's name, amen.